Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's good to be back with you again. It's been a while. I don't recall the last time that I was here. If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 2, our text this morning will be verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So this is God's word for us this morning, so let's pay close heed to it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that by the Spirit you would teach us from your word this morning that you would help us to understand a passage which is hard, not because I think it's difficult to understand, but because it reveals to us something that is difficult to do, easy not to do. Oh, Lord, teach us then. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you are aware, uh, this passage is famous for theological controversy. Uh, Why? Well, I think because at first glance, it seems that James is contradicting Paul, or vice versa if James wrote first, which I think James did write first. But it doesn't really matter. You know, we know that Paul in Romans 3.28, which Marty just read, teaches that Christians are saved by grace alone through faith alone on account of what Christ alone has done. And those of us of the Reformed persuasion, like Desert Springs Presbyterian Church, we have cut our teeth on this doctrine of salvation by faith apart from works. Yet as we read today's passage, James seems to say that we're saved by works or at least by faith plus works. He says here that if works are not present, then we're lost. We're not saved. So down through the centuries, you know, people have read James, they've read Paul, and they've understandably had problems with this apparent contradiction. 
In fact, this was the major issue that spawned the Protestant Reformation. We are justified by faith alone, or we're justified by faith plus works. It's an issue that still divides evangelical Protestants from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, at the heart of this dispute is the fundamental question, how are we saved? Or to put it another way, what is genuine saving faith? And we need, I think we need to see that this is not just an academic debate. The correct answer to that question concerns a person's eternal destiny. You know, if my faith or the faith of my loved ones or friends is not genuine saving faith, I could be deceiving myself you know, in the worst possible way. Now, Jesus spoke some of the most frightening words in the Bible when he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are chilling words. Those words should, should give us pause. So I, it, it's vital, I think, both for our salvation and for those with whom we share the gospel, to get this crucial matter right. What is genuine saving faith? And conversely, what is false faith that does not save? I think we have to approach uh, a controversial text like this one in the proper way. And so let me just give you right up front here four important principles that have guided my interpretation of this passage. I think I put these on your, uh, on your outline. First, we assume that the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself in Scripture. You know, if we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, as Timothy tells us, and we do believe that, then James and Paul are not at odds, even though it may be difficult to harmonize them. There are certainly many mysteries in the Bible. But, dear ones, there are no contradictions. So that's one principle for us to keep in mind as we go through this passage. Second, we have to understand, I think, the particular context and the particular problem that each author is addressing to properly interpret this passage. For example, Paul wrote Galatians to deal with the serious error in that church of adding some outward work, such as circumcision, to faith alone for salvation. Paul says you can't do that. That salvation is by faith alone. On the other hand, James wrote this text to confront the problem of those who profess to believe in Christ, who claim to have faith, but don't have any fruit to show for it. You know, there were people in James' day, as there are people today, who hold that if one believes certain biblical doctrines intellectually, that that's all that counts. That it doesn't matter how we live. 
know, that our ethical life, our conduct, is simply not relevant. And James says you can't do that. He will not permit that kind of thinking to go unchallenged. So we can't lose sight here of the different contexts and problems that Paul and James are addressing. Third, we can't read Paul's use of uh, words into James, and we can't read James' use of words into Paul. You know, both Paul and James use the same words, but with different nuances or understanding of the meaning of those words. You know, a case in point is how Paul and James use this word justify in different ways, and we need to understand this if we're going to be able to bring them together. And finally, I think we have to bring into account all that the Bible teaches on a particular subject into one unified whole. Not just what Paul and James have to say here, but in other places as well. So I just mention those as we work our way through this uh, important, sometimes difficult passage. Just keep those four interpretive principles in mind as we go through it. So this relationship between faith and works is critical. It has eternal consequences. So let's see what James has to say about them here in verses 14 through 26. And then compare what he says to what Paul says about faith and works in other places in Scripture. The first thing to notice is that James describes in verses 14 through 20, these first verses, a faith that cannot save. We're told here that it's a dead faith, that it's without works, that it's mere intellectual assent to the truth. And then in the concluding verses, verses 21 through 26, through two Old Testament illustrations, James contrasts this dead, non-saving faith with a living, true, genuine, saving faith. So let's look first at what what James has to say about this dead faith. has several characteristics, James says. First, he says that it's merely intellectual. It assents to certain truths, but it is not changed by those truths. Note verse 14. Now, the emphasis there is on the word claims or says, depending on what your translation is. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, James pictures here a man who brags about the faith that he has. Yet, when you take a look at his life, when you examine it, it's clearly seen that there isn't any indication that he's truly a child of God. He has no works. And this demonstrates, James says, that his faith, if you want to call it that, is just so many words. It's nothing more. Now, that isn't to say that unless a man or a woman is absolutely perfect, that they're not saved. James is not saying that here. But he is saying that if a person sincerely takes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if the risen Christ comes to dwell in the heart, it is bound to make a difference in his or her life. You know, if a person makes a profession of faith but his lifestyle doesn't change, then I think we can well ask with James, can that faith save her? Can that faith save him? And the grammatical form of the question calls for a negative answer. No, it can't save him. 
It can't save her. You know, a profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person, no matter how strongly and passionately it's proclaimed. So I think that's one thing that James is declaring here. You know, James would agree that this really is not faith at all. He does call it faith because the one who professes it thinks he has faith. But I think James' point here is that it's counterfeit faith. It's a false faith. It's not real. Next, James tells us that this faith is not compassionate. And he illustrates this in verses 15 through 17 by speaking of this wealthy person commiserating with this brother or sister who lacks the essentials of life. The fact that this rich person expresses a desire to see this other person clothed and fed, but he doesn't give any kind of material aid, even though he could, shows that his concern, his compassion is not real. It's phony. It's hypocritical. And so James asks here in verse 16, what good is that? He calls such faith a dead faith in verse 17. He drills this home by calling it useless in verse 20. And again, it's dead in verse 26. And the problem with this kind of faith, James says, the faith that just talks but doesn't act, James says that it's by itself. Verse 17. Faith that is without works is not faith at all. And that leads to the often repeated adage in Protestant theology. I'm sure you've heard it. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, true authentic faith will be, must be, accompanied by works. You know, in his introduction to Romans... Luther stated that saving faith is, and I quote, it's a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done. But before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. And with regard to certain false teachers, you know, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, their profession is false, and such false faith does not save. So Paul and James agree that there is a faith, if you want to call it that. It doesn't save anybody. A third characteristic of dead faith that James gives to us here is shallow conviction. James described this, describes this in verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I want you to notice what James is not saying here. 
He's not talking about two people, one of whom has faith and no works, and the other of whom has works and no faith. No, both of the people referred to here in verse 18 claim to have faith. But one, this hypothetical person that James talks about here, can't substantiate his claim. He says that he has faith, but his life shows no evidence of any work of grace in it. Where's the proof, James asks. This other person, probably it's James himself, likewise claims to have faith. And to prove it, he says, you know, look at my life and see that a change has taken place. Look at the things I've done since I made a profession of faith in Christ. Look at the life I've lived. And you can see that something real has taken place. It's taken place in my heart. You can't see my faith. That's inside my heart. But you can see my works. And by those works, I can show you the unseen faith which motivated them. And James presses the same question on us. Can others see our faith shining out in the life that we live? Not only privately, but the life we live publicly. Now, if not, then I think we have to honestly ask ourselves if we've had a real transaction with the Lord. If we've ever taken Jesus Christ seriously as Lord and Savior. You know, this false sham faith, which James calls dead faith, is said to be familiar to the belief of demons. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, it says, and shudders. See, James, I think, obviously, with just a little touch of sarcasm here, He says that knowing orthodox doctrine is fine, it's good, but it's no guarantee of salvation. He says that even the demons are orthodox in knowing and acknowledging truth about God. You know, we know from the Gospels very clearly that the demons knew very well who Jesus was. Probably far better than anyone else in the country did at that time. Demons are monotheists. They believe in one God. They're very much aware that Scripture is the Word of God. They know that Jesus Christ is God's Son. That salvation is by grace through faith. That Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world. That He ascended to heaven, now seated at the Father's right hand. They know that. They know all the doctrine is true, but all that orthodoxy, as divinely and eternally significant as it is, cannot save them. They know the truth about God, but they hate it. They know the truth about God, but they hate Him. So orthodox doctrine is good. It's necessary because it's true. It points toward God, points toward the way of salvation. But mere intellectual assent to it as true cannot bring a person to God into salvation. It's not enough. You know, James says that demons at least have the good sense to shudder at God's truth in a state of fear because they know the truth. They know that they're going to spend eternity in hell. And in that sense, you could maybe even say they're more realistic and sensible than many with a false dead faith who think that they're okay with God, that they'll somehow escape God's judgment by a 
shallow and superficial faith. Well, in verses 21 through 26, let's go there for a moment. James closes his discussion of the relationship between faith and works. He turns to two practical examples of real saving faith that's found in the Old Testament. And he brings out very clearly just how those cases differ from the dead faith that he speaks about here in verses 14 through 20. And since we've talked about what faith is not, and before we look at these examples of Abraham and Rahab, let me just, I want to just briefly take a little side trip here and highlight how the reformers define true saving faith. You know, James would agree with Paul and all the theologians of the Reformation, including Calvin and Luther, as expressing the nature of true saving faith. They did it by, by looking at three elements. The first element of true faith is called notitia, or knowledge. True faith operates with a knowledge of the gospel, the facts of redemption, knows about the promises of God. And without these, this basic rudimentary knowledge about the content of Christianity, faith would be empty. It would be to trust in nothing. Faith has to have an object. The second element is a census or agreement. You know, true faith obviously agrees that the gospel is true. That the acts of redemption actually happened. That God, having made such promises, is surely going to keep them. The third element is a key one. The third element is fiducia, or trust. This is the act of the will by which a person embraces Christ and those promises for himself or herself. This is going all in for Christ. Committing himself or herself for his or her peace with God and the hope of heaven. You see, it's by fiducia that anyone says and means, the Lord is my shepherd. Notitia and a census could say Christ is Lord, just like the demons. Fiducia says that Christ is my Lord. And faith, it's interesting, faith is described in all three of these ways in the scriptures, in the Bible. But what James is telling us here is that true faith, living faith, saving faith, has to have all three of those components. That's what the Reformers said. You know, I I think here of King Agrippa, when after Paul had witnessed to him, remember he said, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, over in Acts 26. Agrippa's mind was certainly touched by Paul's testimony, that's notition. His heart was stirred in some way, you know, a census, but he never did trust Christ, fiducia. As far as we know, he never did commit to Christ. He never did say, the Lord is my shepherd. King Agrippa never became a Christian. Notitia, a census, fiducia, all. James, Paul, all the reformers would agree that all of those are necessary for true, living, saving faith. So let's look at these two examples of real faith here from the Old Testament. Now, follow along closely in your Bibles, if you would, 
I might get a little technical here. If I do, just raise your hand. Uh, you know, it's James' statement here in verse 21, with its parallel in verse 24, that has created most of the problems that people see between Paul and James. Now, in Romans 3.28, Marty read this a little earlier, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. James says here that he was justified by works. Now, I think the key here is to note that Paul and James are using this word justified in two completely different senses. Paul is looking at God's initial declaration that the believer is righteous through faith in the blood of Christ. I've already read that. Now, in Romans 4.3, Paul cites this same verse that James 2.23 cites. They both cite Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul uses that verse, Genesis 15.6, to argue that Abraham was not justified by his works, by what he did, but by faith alone. And here's, here's the point. Paul was looking at the very beginning of a person's right standing with God. It's based solely on faith. No works. But James uses that verse, Genesis 15, 6, and the word justified differently. James says here in verse 21 that Abraham was justified by works. And then he adds that important little phrase, when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. And he then explains in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. And then he cites Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the event of Abraham's faith, which took place in Genesis 15, 6, that event took place about 40 years before Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, which took place in Genesis 22. I think you see what James is saying here. He's saying that Abraham's obedience in offering Isaac in Genesis 22 proves that his faith that was credited to him back in Genesis 15 was in fact true faith, real faith, saving faith. And his works, his obedience... In offering up Isaac, 40 years later, is just simply proof that what took place in Genesis 15 was the real deal. So Paul looks at the beginning of Abraham's faith, which doesn't depend on his obedience, doesn't depend on his works. James looks at its mature outcome many years later, 40 years later. Two different things, two different contexts, two different problems. And I, you know... I don't want to simplify it too much, but I, I think that's a good solution to the problem of the apparent contradictions between James and Paul. They're using this keyword justify in two different ways, both of which ways are found elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay, you with me? <laughs> All right, let's take a look at Rahab here. Uh, James also gives us this beautiful example of Rahab's true saving faith in these verses. A little background, a little bit of background about Rahab. Rahab was not a member of the chosen nation of Israel. 
She was a heathen woman. She was a prostitute in Jericho. She had a very limited knowledge of God, but she had enough to place her trust in Yahweh and to believe that he would fulfill his promises to Israel. Therefore, if you know the story, when the Israelite spies came to Jericho on this reconnaissance mission, what did she do? She acted. She did something that would have gotten her killed by her fellow citizens in Jericho if they had found out what she'd done. She befriended and protected the spies because she wanted to be on God's side. And for her faith, as limited as it was, she was later spared, if you recall, when the city was sacked, when it was taken. And once again, James says that true faith is always proved by its deeds. It will also express itself in works, in acts. Now, all these, you know, just think about the other people in Jericho. All these other people knew that God was with Israel. They knew that he had performed miracles on her behalf. They, too, were trembling in fear. But it didn't produce in them any action consistent with that faith. In Rahab's case, it led her to take risk on behalf of God's people, to help them in need, and to bank her hope of survival and that of her family on her acknowledgement of this one true God. And James says here that that is true faith. That is saving faith. It's genuine. Well, let me just conclude this. I think sometimes that we have a tendency to overthink this. Uh, I think we all know from our experience that that the stronger our faith is, the more works we do, the more obedient and useful our lives become. I think we know very well that there's a direct connection between our faith, the strength of our faith, and the way that we live our daily lives. And of course, when we witness a conversion... When we witness a person coming to faith in Jesus, we expect to see, and then we do see. We see their lives changing. It's it's almost a fixed spiritual law. Now, in this regard, I often think of a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. How many people have heard of Rosaria Butterfield? There's a few here that have. Uh, Her story is quite remarkable. Let me just sort of give you the cliff notes. She chronicles her story in her book titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into the Christian faith. If you haven't read it, you should buy it, and uh, I highly recommend it. Rosaria Butterfield was a practicing lesbian. She was a tenured associate English professor at Syracuse University. She also held a joint teaching appointment in the Center for Women's Studies at Syracuse. She and her cohabitating partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where she was the coordinator of the welcoming committee for the gay and lesbian advocacy group. As a lesbian activist, she was involved deeply in her gay community. She She drafted and lobbied for the university's first successful domestic partnership policy, which gave spousal benefits to gay couples. She picketed and marched for abortion rights, helped organize rallies and protests, 
And as a result, she, she came to despise evangelical Christians, the enemy of these causes. She published in the local newspaper a strong critique of the Promise Keepers' ministry for their gender politics for which she received a whole lot of mail, a whole lot of hate mail and some fan mail. One letter she received was from a pastor by the name of Ken Smith. Ken Smith was the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the RPCNA, one of our sister Reformed denominations. She reports in her book that it was a kind and inquiring letter, asking if they could explore together such things as how how did she arrive at her interpretations of life? How did she know she was right? Did she believe in God? She said that Pastor Smith didn't argue with her article. He asked her simply to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. And that started a series of meetings over dinner with Pastor Smith and his wife, Floyd, which eventually, over time, led the Lord to draw her to himself, and she committed her life to Christ. She says in her book, hardly knowing what in the world she was doing. The girlfriend with which she had been living couldn't understand this madness. She mocked Rosaria's new life, new faith, accused her of consorting with the kind of people that want to put gays in the concentration camp. She found herself alienated from the very people whom she had long counted on for support, the academic community and the gay community. It was at this point that she described her conversion as feeling like an alien abduction. And she also said it felt a lot like a train wreck. Her world had turned upside down, and she admitted that her journey out of lesbianism was messy. It was difficult. But slowly and steadily over time, she realized that her views on the social issues that she had up to this point of her life had changed. She hardly knew why, she says. But she knew that she could no longer live as a lesbian. She realized that things like partial birth abortion and other social issues grieved God, and she changed. To make a long story short, she continued to mature in her faith with the help of many Christian friends. She left her tenured teaching job at Syracuse, got married to an RPCNA pastor, She now has four adopted children. She had a one-year visiting teacher position at Geneva College, which is the RPCNA denomination. It's a Christian college. In other words, she's now living a Christian life. She's serving the Lord. And here's the deal. Rosaria Butterfield's life did not change because she had believed in Jesus for her salvation from sin and death, and then several years later happened to read James 2 and realized that she ought to be adding some good works to her faith. Her life changed. Her behavior changed. Her interests changed. Her causes changed naturally, relentlessly, simply because she was now a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, Once anyone realizes that Jesus is Lord of all things and that he's the Savior of sinners, all manner of things must change and will change. 
Once one has encountered the love of God, one cannot live the same life one has lived before. Once one experiences deliverance from sin and death, one enters a different world where a new set of loves directs one's step. Rosaria did not perform what Christians call good works in the first place because she realized she was supposed to. See, these good works were the effulgence. They were the outcome. They were the overflow of her personal commitment to Christ and to the truth he had revealed to her about herself, about the world, about salvation, about the goodness of his will and about the future. They were the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which always accompanies faith in Christ. You see, they were the inevitable results of the new birth, without which no one can believe in Christ. Such changes are called sanctification by theologians. You know, it's a process of becoming holy, which always accompanies justification, God's declaration. Justification and sanctification can be distinguished. They're different things, to be sure. Talking about the forgiveness of sins, talking about the transformation of life, but they can never, ever be separated. They're aspects of the same divine salvation that God grants to his chosen ones. They go together. See, that's why faith without works is dead. It can't really be faith at all if it doesn't produce a distinctly Christian life. And that's what James is saying here. And Paul would agree with that. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, there's... there's Really nothing hard to understand about this passage. But when one is in denial, when one has fooled oneself into thinking that one is a Christian, and yet there are no signs of life, it's easy to ignore and even to misunderstand the clear teaching of this passage. May we always carefully examine ourselves, test ourselves to see if we are in the faith, As James concludes here, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May God bless this critical saving truth to our hearts and minds even today. In Jesus' name, amen.